Chapter Twelve, Part One of A History of the Philippines. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elliot Miller. A History of the Philippines by David Barrows. Chapter Twelve, Part One. Progress and Revolution, eighteen thirty-seven to eighteen ninety-seven. PROGRESS DURING THE LAST HALF-CENTURY OF SPANISH RULE We have now come to the last half-century and to the last phase of Spanish rule. In many respects, this period was one of economic and social progress, and contained more of a promise than any other in the history of the islands. During this last half-century, the Spanish rulers had numerous plans for the development and better administration of the Philippines, and, in spite of a somewhat wavering policy and the continual soar of official peculation, this was a period of wonderful advancement. Revolution and separation from Spain came at last, as revolutions usually do, not because there was no effort nor movement for reform, but because progress was so discouragingly slow and so irritatingly blocked by established interests that desired no change. Effective Opening the Port of Manila to Foreign Trade increase in agriculture. The opening of the Port of Manila to foreign trade in 1837 was followed by a period of rising industry and prosperity. Up to this time the archipelago had been a country producing for export, but the fraying of trade led to the rising of great harvests of foreign export, which have made worldwide the fame of certain Philippine productions. Chief among these are, of course, Manila, hemp, and tobacco. These were followed by sugar and coffee culture, the latter plant enriching the province of Batangas, while the planting of new coconut groves yearly made of greater importance the yield of that excellent product, copra. These rich merchandises had entered very little into commerce during the early decades of the century. Increase in Exports In 1810, the entire imports of the Philippines amounted in value to $5,329,000 but more than half of this consisted of silver sent from Mexico. From Europe and the United States trade amounted to only $175,000. The exports in the same year amounted to $4,795,000, but a million and a half of this was Mexican silver exported on to China, and the whole amount of exports to Europe and the United States was only $250,000. In 1831, the exportation of hemp amounted to only 346 tons, but the effect upon production of opening Manila to foreign trade is seen in the export six years later of 2,585 tons. By 1858, the exportation of hemp had risen to 412,000 pickles, or 27,500 tons. Of this amount, nearly two-thirds, or 298,000 pickles, went to the United States. At this time the North Atlantic seaboard of America was the center of a most active shipbuilding and ship-carrying trade. The American flag was conspicuous among the vessels that frequented these eastern ports, and Manila hemp was largely sought after by American seamen to supply the shipyards at home. Of sugar, the export in 1858 amounted to 557,000 pickles, of which more than half went to Great Britain. After 1814, general permission had been given to foreigners to establish trading houses in Manila, and by 1858 
there were fifteen such establishments, of which seven were English and three American. Other ports opened to foreign commerce. In 1855, three other ports were opened to foreign commerce. Swal in Pangasinan on the Gulf of Lingayen, Iloilo and Zamboagna. In 1863, Cebu likewise was made an open port. The exports of Swal consisted only of rice, and in spite of its exceptional harbor this port never flourished, and is this day no more than an unfrequented village. Iloilo exported leaf tobacco, sugar, sapan or dyewood, an industry long ago ruined, hemp and hides. Zamboagno, through the Chinese, had a small trade with the Jolo and the Moro Islands, and exported the produce of these seas, sea slug, tripang, shark fins, mother of pearl, tortoise shell, etc. For some years the customs laws in these ports were trying and vexatious and prevented full advantage being taken of the privileges of export. But in 1869 this service was, by royal decree, greatly liberalized and improved. Since that date the Philippines have steadily continued to grow in importance in the commercial world. The Form of Government Under the Spanish General Improvements This is perhaps a convenient place to examine the last time the political system which the Spaniards maintained in the country. In 1850, there were thirty-four provinces and two politico-military commandancias. In these provinces, the Spanish administration was still vested solely in the alcalde mayor, who until after 1886 was both governor or executive officer, and the judge or court for the trial of provincial cases and crimes. Many of the old abuses which had characterized the government of the alcaldes had been at least partially remedied. After 1844, they had no longer the much-abused monopoly privilege of trade, nor had they as free a hand in controlling the labor of the inhabitants. But opportunities for illegal enrichment existed in administration of the treasury and tax system, and these opportunities were not slighted. Up to the very end of Spanish rule, the officials, high and low, are accused of stealing public money. THE PUEBLO The unit of administration was the Pueblo or township which ordinarily embraced many square miles of country and contained numerous villages, or barrios. The center of the town was naturally the site where, for centuries, had stood the great church and the convent of the missionary friars. These locations had always been admirably chosen, and about them grew up the market and trading shops of Chinese and the fine and durable homes of the more prosperous Filipinos and mestizos. About 1860 the government began to concern itself with the construction of public buildings and improvements, and the result is seen in many pueblos in the finely laid-out plazas and well-built municipal edifices grouped about the square of the tribunal, or townhouse, the jail, and the small but significant schoolhouses. The government of the town was vested in a gobernadocio and a council, each of the concialges usually representing a hamlet or barrio. But the Spanish friar, who in nearly every pueblo was the parish curate, continued to be the paternal guardian and administrator of the pueblo. In general, no matter was too minute for his dictation. Neither gobernadorilio nor councillors dared act in opposition to his wishes, and the alcalde of the province was careful to keep on friendly terms and leave town affairs largely to his dictation. 
The friar was the local inspector of public instruction, and ever vigilant to detect and destroy radical ideas. To the humble Filipino, the friar was the visible and only representative of Spanish authority. THE REVOLT OF 1841 REPRESSION OF THE PEOPLE BY THE FRIARS Unquestionably, in the past, the work of the friars had been of very great value. But men as well as institutions may lose their usefulness, as conditions change, and the time was now approaching when the autocratic and paternal regime of the friars no longer satisfied the Filipinos. Their zeal was no longer disinterested, and their work had become materialized by the possession of the vast estates upon which their spiritual charges lived and labored as tenants or dependents. The policy of the religious orders had, in fact, become one of repression, and as the aspirations of the Filipinos increased, the friars, filled with doubt and fear, tried to draw still tighter the bonds of their own authority, and viewed with growing distrust the rising ambition of the people. Apollinario de la Cruz The unfortunate revolution of 1841 shows the wayward and misdirected enthusiasm of the Filipino, and the unwisdom of the friars. Apollinario de la Cruz, a young Filipino, a native of Lucban Tayabayas, came up to Manila filled with the ambition to lead a monastic life, and engaged high theological studies. By his attendance upon lectures and sermons, and by imitation of the friar-preachers of Manila, Apollinario became himself quite an orator, and, as subsequent events showed, was about to arouse great numbers of his own people by his appeals. It was his ambition to enter one of the regular monastic orders, but this religious privilege was never granted to Filipinos, and he was refused. He then entered a brotherhood known as the Cofradia, or Brotherhood of San Juan de Dios, composed entirely of Filipinos. After some years in this brotherhood, he returned in 1840 to Tayabas and founded the Cofradia de San Jose, his aim to being to form a special cult in honor of St. Joseph and the Virgin. For this he requested authorization from Manila. It was here that the lack of foresight of the friars appeared. THE OPPOSITION OF THE FRIARS Instead of sympathizing with these religious aspirations, in which, up to this point, there seems to have been nothing heretical, they viewed the rise of the Filipino religious leader with alarm. Their policy never permitted to the Filipino any position that was not wholly subordinate. They believed that the permanence of Spanish power in these islands lay in suppressing any Latin ability for leadership in the Filipino himself. Their influence, consequently, was thrown against Apollinario, and the granting of the authority for his work. They secured not only a condemnation of his plan, but an order for the arrest and imprisonment of all who should attend upon his preaching. Apollinario forced to rebel. Apollinario thereupon took refuge in independent action. His movement had already become a strong one, and his followers numbered several thousand people of Laguna, Tayabas, and Batangas. The governor of Tayabas province, Don Joaquin Ortega, organized an expedition to destroy the schism. Accompanied by two Franciscan friars, he attacked Apollinario in the month of October 1840 and was defeated and killed. One account says that Apollinario was assisted by a band of Negritos, whose bowmanship was destructive. 
There are still a very few of these little blacks in the woods in the vicinity of Lukban. Apollinario was now in the position of an open rebel, and he fortified himself in the vicinity of Aleteo, where he built a fort and chapel. His religious movement became distinctly independent and heretical. A church was formed, of which he was first elected archbishop and then supreme pontiff. He was also charged with having assumed the title of King of the Tagalogs. Finally, a force under the new alcalde, Vital, and General Huet early in November attacked Apollinario's stronghold, and after a fierce struggle defeated the revolutionists. About a thousand Filipinos perished in the final battle. Apollinario was captured and executed. He was then twenty-seven years of age. Organization of Municipal Governments In 1844, an able and liberal governor, General Claveria, arrived and remained until the end of the year 1849. A better organization of the provincial governments, which we have seen, followed Claveria's entrance into office, and in October 1847 came the important decree, organizing the municipalities in the form which we have already described and which remained without substantial modification to the end of the Spanish rule, and which has to a considerable extent been followed in the municipal code framed by the American government. Subjection of the Igorot Tribes With Claveria began a decisive policy of conquest among the Igorot tribes of northern Luzon, and by the end of Spanish rule these mountains were dotted with quartels and missions for the control of these unruly tribes. The province of Nueva Vizcaina has been particularly subject to the raids of these head-hunting peoples. Year after year, the Christian towns of the plains had yielded a distressing sacrifice of life to satisfy the savage ceremonials of the Igorots. In 1847, Claveria nominated as governor of Nueva Vizcaina Don Mariano Oscariz, whose severe and telling conquest for the first time checked these Nueva Vizcaina outrages, and made possible the development of the great valleys of northern Luzon. Spanish Settlements on Mindanao, Zicuari Boanga With Claveria's governorship, we enter also upon the last phase of Moro piracy. In spite of innumerable expeditions, Spain's occupation of South Mindanao and the Sulu Archipelago was limited to the Presidio of Zamboangana, she had occupied this strategic point continuously since the re-establishment of Spanish power in 1763. The great stone fort, which still stands, has proved impregnable to Moro attack, and had long been unmolested. Distributed for a distance of some miles over the rich lands at this end of the Zamboagna Peninsula was a Christian population, which had grown up largely from the descendants of rescued captives of the Moros coming originally from all parts of the Biseas, Calamienes, and Luzon, this mixed population had grown to have somewhat different character from that of any other part of the islands. A corrupt Spanish dialect, known as the Chabucano, has become the common speech, the only instance in the Philippines where the native dialect has been supplanted. This population, loyal and devoutly Catholic, never failed to sustain the defense of this isolated Spanish outpost, and contributed brave volunteers to every expedition against the Moro Islands. 
activity of other nations. But Spain's maintenance of Zamboanga was insufficient to sustain her claims of sovereignty over the Sulu and Tawi-Tawi groups. Both the Dutch and English planned various moves for their occupation and acquisition. And in 1844 a French fleet entered the archipelago and concluded a treaty with the Sultan of Sulu for the cession of the island of Basilan for the sum of one million dollars. Writings of the French minister and historian M. Guzot show that France hoped by the acquisition of this island to obtain a needed naval joss in the east and found a great commercial port within the sphere of Chinese trade. Conquest of the Gulf of Davao But this step roused the Spaniards to activity and the occupation of the island. A naval vessel subdued the towns along the north coast, and then, proceeding to the mouth of the Rio Grande, secured from the Sultan of Maguindanao the cession of the great Gulf of Davao. Spain took no immediate steps to occupy this gulf, but in 1847 a Spaniard, Don José Oyangarin, proposed to the governor, Claveria, to conquer the region at his own expense if he could be furnished with artillery and munitions and granted a ten years' government of Davao, with the exclusive privilege of trade. His offer was accepted by the governor and the audencia, and Oyangaran organized the company to secure funds for the undertaking. In two years' time he had subdued the coast regions of this gulf, expelled the pirates who harbored there, and founded the settlement of Nueva Vegarna. He seems to have been making progress toward the conquest and commercial exploitation of this region, when jealous attacks in Manila induced Governor Orbitstondo to cancel his privilege and to relieve him by an officer of the government. In subsequent years the Jesuits had a few mission stations here, and made a few converts among the Bagabos. But the region is still an unsubdued and unutilized country, whose inhabitants are mainly pagan tribes and whose rich agricultural possibilities lie undeveloped and unclaimed. The Samal Pirates, the Sulu The piratical inhabitants of the Sulu archipelago are made of two distinct Malayan peoples, the Sulu, or Sulug, and the Samal, who are known throughout Malaysia as the Baojau, or Orang Laut, men of the sea. The former appear to be the older inhabitants. They occupy the rich and populous island of Jolo, and some islands of the Siasi group, immediately south. The Samal The Samal, or Bajau, are stated to have come originally from Johore. Many of them live almost exclusively in their boats, passing their lives from birth to death upon the sea. They are found throughout most parts of Malaysia, the position of their little fleets changing with the shifting of the monsoons. In the Sulu archipelago, and a few points in South Mindanao, many of these Samal have shifted their homes from their boats to the shore. Their villages are built upon piles over the sea, and on many of the low coral reefs south of Siasi and east of Tawi-Tawi there are great towns or settlements which have apparently been in existence a long while. Fifty years ago the Samal were very numerous in the many islands between Jolo and Basilan and this group is still known as the Islas Samales. Like the Sulu and other Malays, the Samal are Mohammedans and scarcely less persistent pirates than their fellow Malays. With the decline of piratical power among the Sulu of Jolo, 
the focus of piracy shifted to these settlements of the Samal, and in the time of Claveria the worst centers were the islands of Belanginji and Tonkal, lying just north of the island of Jolo. From here pirate and slaving raids upon the Bisayan Islands continued to be made, and nearly every year towns were sacked and burned and several hundred unfortunate captives carried away. The captives were destined for slavery, and regular marts existed for this traffic at Jolo and on the Bay of San Duncan in Borneo. Arrival of Steam Warships In 1848 the Philippines secured the first steam war vessels. These were the Magellanese, the Elcano, and the Riana de Castilla. They were destined to revolutionize Moro relations. The Destruction of the Samal Forts Hitherto it had been possible for the great Moro war prows, manned by many oarsmen, to drop their masts on the approach of an armed sailing vessel, and, turning toward the eye of the wind, where no sailing ship could pursue, row calmly away from danger. Steam alone was effective in combating these sea-wolves. Claveria took these newly arrived ships, and, with a strong force of infantry, which was increased by Zamboagano volunteers, he entered the Samal group in February 1848 and landed on the island of Balangingi. There were four fortresses situated in the mangrove marshes of the island. These, in spite of a desperate resistance, were carried by the infantry and Zamboagnios, and the pirates scattered. The conduct of the campaign appears to have been admirable and the fighting heroic. The Moros were completely overwhelmed. Four hundred and fifty dead were burned or interred. One hundred and twenty-four pieces of artillery, for the most part the small brass cannon called the Intacas, were captured. And one hundred and fifty Moro boats were destroyed. The Spaniards cut down the coconut groves, and with spoil that included such rich pirate loot as silks, silver vases, ornaments and weapons of war, and with over two hundred prisoners and three hundred rescued captives, returned to Zamboagna. This was the most signal victory ever won by Europeans in conflict with Malay piracy. The effectiveness of this campaign is shown by the fact that while in the preceding year four hundred and fifty Filipinos had suffered capture at the hands of Moro pirates, in 1848 and the succeeding year there was scarcely a depredation. But in 1850, a pirate squadron from Tonkal, an island adjacent to Balangingi, fell upon Samar and Kamajin. Fortunately, Governor Urbistondo, who had succeeded Claveria, vigorously continued the policy of his predecessor, and an expedition was promptly dispatched which destroyed the settlements and strongholds on Tonkal. Destruction of the Moro Forts at Jolo a year later war broke out again with Jolo, and after a varied interchange of negotiations and hostilities, the Spaniards stormed and took the town in February 1851. The question of permanent occupation of this important site was debated by a council of war, but their forces appearing unequal to the task, the forts of the Moros were destroyed, and the expedition returned. Jolo is described at this tune as a very strongly guarded situation. Five forts and a double line of trenches faced the shore. The Moro town is said to have contained about seven thousand souls, and there was a barrio of Chinese traders who numbered about five hundred. Treaty Irigit the Sultan of Sulu A few months later, 
the governor of Zamboagna concluded a treaty with the Sultan of Sulu by which the archipelago was to be considered an incorporated part of the Panis possessions. The Sultan bound himself to make no further treaties with or cessions to foreign powers, to suppress piracy, and to fly the Spanish flag. Moros were guaranteed the practice of their religion, the secession of the Sultan and his descendants in the established order. Boats of Jolo were to enjoy the same trading privileges in Spanish ports as other Filipino vessels, and the Sultan retained the right to all customs duties on foreign trading vessels. Finally, in compensation for the damages of war, the Sultan was to be paid an annual subsidy of 1,500 pesos and 600 pesos each to three datos and 360 pesos to a sharif. The End of Malay Piracy In these very years that Malay piracy was receiving such severe blows from the recuperating power and activity of the Spanish government on the north, it was crushed also from the south by the merciless warfare of a great Englishman, the Raja James Brooks of Sarawak. The sources of pirate depredation were Mangindaneo, the Sulu Archipelago, and the north and west coasts of the great island of Borneo. We have seen how these fleets, century after century, swept northward and wasted with fire and murder the fair islands of the Philippines. But this archipelago was not alone in suffering these ravages. The peaceful trading inhabitants of the great island groups to the south were persistently visited and despoiled. Moreover, as the Chinese trade by the Cape of Good Hope route became established in the first half of the nineteenth century, these pirates became a great menace to European shipping. They swarmed the China Sea, and luckless indeed was the ship carried too far eastward on its course. Every American schoolboy is familiar with the stories of fierce hand-to-hand -hand struggles with Malay pirates, which have come down from those years when the American flag was seen everywhere in the ports of the Far East. About 1839, a young English officer, who had been in the Indian service, James Brooke, having armed and equipped a yacht of about 140 tons, set sail for the coast of Borneo, with the avowed intent of destroying Malay piracy and founding an independent state. In all the romantic stories of the East, there is no career of greater daring than that of this man. In 1841, having engaged in several bloody exploits, Brooke forced from the Sultan of Borneo the cession of Sarawak, with the government vested in himself as an independent Raja. Brooke now devoted himself with merciless severity to the destruction of the pirates in the deep bays and swampy rivers, whence they had so long made their excursions. Later, he was assisted by the presence of the English man-of-war Dido, and in 1847 the Sultan of Bruni ceded to Great Britain the island of Labuan. In 1849, Brooke visited Zamboagna in the English man-of-war Mosander and concluded a treaty with the Sultan of Sulu, which greatly alarmed the Spaniards. Brooke's private correspondence shows that he was ambitious and hopeful of acquiring for England parts of the Dutch possessions in the south and the Spanish Philippines in the north, but his plans were never followed up by England, although in 1887 North Borneo was ceded to an English company, and all the northern and eastern portions of this great island are now under English protection. Liberal Ideas Among the Filipinos 
The release from Moro piracy, the opening of foreign commerce, and the development of agricultural production were rapidly bringing about a great change in the aspirations of the Filipino people themselves. Nearly up to the middle of the nineteenth century, the Filipinos had felt the full effect of isolation from the life and thought of the modern world. But the revolutionary changes in Europe and the struggles for constitutional government in Spain had their influence, even in these faraway Spanish possessions. Spaniards of liberal ideas, some of them in official positions, found their way to the islands, and an agitation began, originating among Spaniards themselves against the paternal powers of the friars. Influence of the Press The growth of periodic literature accelerated this liberalizing movement. The press, though suffering a severe censorship, had played a large part in shaping recent thought in these islands and in communicating to the Filipino people those ideas and purposes which ever inspire and elevate men. The first newspaper to make its appearance in the Philippines was in 1822, El Philanthropo, but journalism assumed no real importance until the forties, when there were founded Seminario Filipino, 1843, and almost immediately after several others, El Amigo de Paris, 1845, La Estrella, 1846, and La Esperanza, 1847, the first daily. These were followed by Diario de Manila, 1848. In 1858, El Comercio appeared, the oldest of the papers still in existence. Papers conducted by Filipinos and in the Filipino tongues are of more recent origin, but these early Spanish periodicals had a real effect upon the Filipinos themselves, training up a class familiar with the conduct of journalism and preparing a way for the very influential work of the Filipino press in recent years. End of chapter 12, part 1